Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. ばそうせいこ。法工事、ばそにまじて弁地と万法と共なるざる者、これ何人ぞ。そう曰く。何時がいつくに聖句推移を求人戦の待って、すなわち光に向かって言わん。こう勝念として大合詞、章を作って言わ
folk who appear in the cases that we hear about. Because in the end, this is where the life of this practice is. This is it. And no others than just us right now are doing this. And for that, I feel deeply grateful. To each of you. So as the day continues, there are plenty of times left to screw up. <laughs> and it's a very important part of what we do here, is we have to really mess up. We heard so wonderfully about the seeds, and some of those seeds ha have very special flowers that look beautiful, but then when they come out, they have a terrible smell. And that could be a mess up. But we have to learn with our practice here the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we mess up, we really have to mess up. We can't just do it halfway. There's nothing worse than a half messed up situation, <laughs> you know? Well, you would say, maybe look at my life. <laughs> no, it's completely messed up. It has to be so messed up that we don't fall into this thinking of this is how it should be and this is good, this is bad and all of that. We heard about it, uh, that this was what the sixth ancestor said to his pursuer when he could not lift the robe. Do not think good, do not think evil. At this moment, and fill in your own name or whatever call you give to yourself. Where is your true self? And when you're really with it at that moment, there is no mess, no fuss, no comparison. And it is so interesting to see how the universe brings things together. How a mention of this person in one talk leads to that person appearing the next day in another talk. And the same thing is happening here. This case number 23 of this entangling vines presents us with layman Pang. Hoon Koji, and Hoon Koji was mentioned just yesterday, not by name, but something that he said, and we'll be getting to this in the context of talking about this koan, this case. Also, I'm very th uh, thankful to, to the Shumon Katushi true to bring this case up right now, because suddenly we have not Master X and Ancestor Y, where there are hundreds and hundreds of 
ordained people and maybe one ordained woman. But now we need somebody who is by all accounts regarded as one of the greatest proponents of Zen, of realization, as a non-ordained person. That's just what we needed. And we'll be looking at this a little bit today again. Still, the case is named after Basso. Right? There is no preference there, you know? It's not, not that we, we run a franchise here that has to keep the brand. Uh, it's Basso. Basso's West River. What West River is he talking about? I know there's the East River in New York. So is it the Hudson on the other side, or what is it? Which river is the West River? Huh? The Yangtze. Is it the Yellow River? Translated, the Yangtze. That's a pretty big river. Not only in terms of the amount of water that it carries, but the whole function that the river has for China as a culture. Only by the fact that it brings this yellow soil from the high plateaus of Asia down into the lower lands of China. And not only that, but by flooding it, by doing something that nowadays we don't like. Ooh, you live in a flood zone, you have to get flood insurance. No. The land has to be flooded so it becomes fertile. Fecund. What a strange word, isn't it? <laughs> Fecund. Very fertile land. And that, in the end, led to the Chinese culture that allowed all these wonderful things, including the Chan masters, to appear in our lives. That is the West River, life-giving at the same time, life-taking. Hold that thought. So, Basso Doizo. Basso Doizo was born in 709 of the Common Era, and he lived until 788. His family name in Chinese is Ma. And if you have the character in mind, you know what Ma means? Or Ba in, in Japanese, Uma. What is that? A horse. Ma means horse. That's their family name. So Baso means ancestor horse. Nice, very earthy. So he was born in the northwest of Chengdu in Sichuan province. There's this book, the Keito Dentoroku, 
which describes all those biographies of the Zen masters of the Chinese era. It was written in 1004, compiled. And Basso is described as follows. His appearance was remarkable. He strode along like a bull and glared about him like a tiger. If he stretched out his tongue, it reached up over his nose. <laughs> that could come in handy during Sazen sometimes, you know? <laughs> Especially when it's cold. On the soles of his feet were imprinted two circular marks. That's quite remarkable. On the feet, do you remember anyone else whose first depiction started with just the feet? Mm, the Buddha. The first images of the Buddha were just the feet. And what was on the feet? Some marks. Either it was in the beginning you could find a swastika, or later you would find the wheel. So he had it on his feet. He was born that way. He was destined to become a franchise holder. <laughs> and he did. Who was his teacher? Nangaku Ejo. Yeah, Nangaku Ejo. So this is very early in the Chinese Zen history. Bodhidharma just came. Then there were six ancestors. That's not a long time. This is the time that is about between, between Roshi and Hakuin Zenji. That's not, not a long time. So we know a lot about Basso, so I will not uh, talk to him too much. But in uh, the description, in, in the transmission of the lamp for his teacher, actually, the following story is told about the interaction between Basso, the student, and uh, his teacher. It does not necessarily claim that this is the awakening account for Basso, but it often is taken as that. And that's why I, I went back to an earlier and, and more primitive version of the story. You know how stories go. They start out as a little thing, and then the, another person tells it and adds something to it. And then the stories grow and grow and grow. But this, the seed of this story here, uh, is actually in an anthology of the Patriarchal Hall, which was transcribed in 952, so some 52 years before the Keito Dentoroku. And in there it says, very plain, Baso was sitting in a spot. And Nangaku took a tile and sat on a rock facing him, rubbing it. Basso asked, what are you doing? Master said, 
I'm rubbing the tile to make it in the mirror. Basu said, how can you make a mirror by rubbing a tile? Master said, if I can't make a mirror by rubbing a tile, how can you achieve Buddhahood by sitting in meditation? So that is the seminal story of the awakening of Paso Duizo. Paso was always doing Zazen. And while he was sitting somewhere doing Zazen, his teacher came and he picked up the tile. You can embellish the story yourselves and read it. But that is the basic uh, awakening of Paso. And it's interesting to, to see that from the very beginning, because you might ask yourself, why are we doing Zazen that? Well, there's nothing wrong with Zazen. Listen to Haku and Zenji. It's just what we think about it. Sometimes people come to Sishin in order to get rid of all kinds of ideas and things. And ideally, that idea would be the first one to get rid of. So here comes the second person, the layman, Pang, Hoon Koji. How many of you, when they first heard about Zen, thought, oh, I have to become a monk and I have to go to Japan? Anyone? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Same happened to me. Well, you have to go to the source and you have to be a monk, of course. That's where the franchise is dispensed. <laughs> At some point, made in Japan was not a good thing, you know? They thought it was the cheap stuff. Now it is made in China. Some people remember that, you know? Uh, I wrote my first letter to, to, to Vienna to, to Genro Seiyun Osho, basically asking him the question, since he must have done that, how do I go about it? And of course, to my great disappointment, the answer was, well, I've never studied in Japan. I don't understand a single word of Japan, Japanese, so I'm sorry, I can't help you. But if you'd like to come and sit a session, you don't have to go far. Just take the train and come here. But this kind of romantic idea of having to go... For, for, First, your mind is poisoned with the three pillars of Zen. <laughs> How many of you have experienced the three pillars of Zen poisoning? <laughs> oh, yeah, right, right. This is the right thing. And then if you don't have some kind of seizure at some point, there's something, something, wrong, something wrong with you, right? 
at least foam in front of the mouth or something like that, or it is not authentic. Yeah. But all of this points me to this, to this layman here who, who really I welcome so heartily because uh, there is this idea that one has to be ordained to be a serious practitioner. And that's just rubbish. This is just rubbish. It's wonderful to be ordained. But it is a calling and a vocation, as it is a calling and a vocation to be a physician, to be an actor, to be a mediator, to be whatever one is called to be in this life. It is not a prerequisite to engaging in serious Zen practice. And Layman Pang, he is a wonderful example for that. So, Pang Koji was born in 740 and died in 808. There's another lay person in the Buddhist history that is like Pang earlier. Do you remember? Yeah, Vimalakirti. Vimalakirti and, and Layman Pang, they're considered to, to exemplify the potential for non-monastic Buddhist practitioners uh, not only to live an exemplary life, but also to fully awaken. To fully awaken. Pang is his family name. The Chinese Jushi, or Koji in Japanese, is the Sanskrit Upasaka. Upasaka are the non-ordained practitioners and followers of the Buddha. He had a personal name, Yun, which is almost never used. Lei Pang. Originally, he was from Henyang in the southern Chinese province of Hunan. He made a living as a merchant. He had a wife, a son, and a daughter. And the family was very wealthy. And that allowed them to devote their time to studying the sutras and to studying Buddhism. It just strikes me at the second. There's this, this really stark contrast to wealthy families that don't study anything but just try to become more powerful, more and more. Here, a completely different sentiment, the sentiment of, well, the wealth enables us. Now we have the time to follow this teaching of the Buddha. And to a certain degree, I think very wealthy of myself or rich to be able to do this. That was one of the things that Genro Seon always pointed out to us, you know, if you had to hunt for food in the dumpsters or go gather berries and roots and vegetables in the forest, you wouldn't have time for this. 
And maybe if it were like that, we probably wouldn't need it. <laughs> because we are not all screwed up here in all the things we have to have. If the essential thing is to find fresh water and something to eat for tonight, then that is a very, very wonderful corn that has to be solved then. Or it's over. Very easy. But this family used their wealth and looked at the Buddhist sutras. And all of them became very well versed in them. His daughter, Ling Chao, was particularly adept. So let me tell you one story about her that demonstrates how she was adept. One day, someone asked Lei Meng Pang, is Zen difficult or is it easy? He replied, it is like trying to hit the moon with a stick. Very difficult, very difficult. Then this questioner began thinking, ah, oh, Zen is very, very difficult. But as he was leaving the house, he passed by Pang's wife. And he knew that she also is very, very advanced Buddhist practitioner. And so he says, oh, uh, your husband said, Zen is difficult. I ask you then, is Zen difficult or is Zen easy? She says, oh, Zen is very easy. It's like touching your nose when you wash your face in the morning. The questioner was flabbergasted. How is it possible? Layman Pang says, Zen is difficult. His wife says, it is very easy. Who, are, who of them is right? And they happened to be the son. So he turned to the son and says, well, so your father says it's very difficult. Your mother says it's, it's very easy. Who of them is right? And the son replied, if you think it's difficult, it's difficult. If you think it's easy, it's easy. The man left the house and was more confused than when he came. <laughs> but as he was leaving the house, the daughter was returning home. And he had one more chance to ask. And he said to her, everyone in your whole family has a different answer to my question. Your mother says Zen is easy. Your father says it's very difficult. And your brother said, don't make difficult and easy. So I ask you, is Zen difficult or easy? 
Let's have some tea. She said. This is a wonderful illustration also of the various aspects of Zen practice that we might find in our own experience of it. If we pin the koans up into the heavens and have this little intellectual stick and try to hit, hit it, it is very, very difficult. It is almost impossible. But if we get in the process of letting go within this wonderful setup to the time where there is no thinking about it. And we just scratch ourselves and do it. Then it is easy. And after we have that experience comes our sun mind and says, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can make it easy or you can make it difficult which in itself, of course, is falling back into, into the pit, into the pit that we just came out of. And that's where we, where we need and have to meet that spirit of the daughter. <gasps> Sorry, let's have some tea. So there, there's another story with the daughter that I really love. And that also somewhat has to do with making mistakes. What happened to the family when they got deeper and deeper into Buddhism, they realized there is a discord between having this big amount of money and all these possessions and what we are supposed to practice. And legend has it that uh, Lehman Pang just took all his stuff on a boat Road, it probably wasn't a rowboat. It must, <laughs> uh, he took his 80-foot yacht <laughs> and loaded it with his condos and third and fourth homes and uh, steered it out into the Chinese sea and pulled the plug and sunk it. So he, he got rid of everything, and they started working again, making baskets from bamboo selling and trading and living an itinerant lifestyle, going from one place to the next, having no home in the sense of having no home that would be captivating them, that would be captured in. So one day the daughter and, and uh, the father were out selling their bamboo baskets Coming down off a bridge, he stumbled and fell. When the daughter saw this, she ran over to her father's side and also fell to the ground, just next to him. He looked at her, what, what are you doing? Father, I saw you fall, so, so I'm helping. She explained. Luckily, nobody saw. He looked around. It's a wonderful story. 
the falling. We fall down all the time. Try to remember what happened when you last saw somebody fall. What was the first thing you did? I remember Roshi telling me that she fell in the middle of one of the big avenues crossing on the crosswalk in, in Manhattan. Right there. And suddenly, like Moses parted the Red Sea, the crowd started parting around her. <laughs> Let's stay away from this crazy old woman. You know, don't even go near her. That's what people do nowadays. Or what is it? Do we look, did somebody else see? Can I get out of this? Somebody will be taking care of it. Nah. Or do we give a hand? Because we are a good person. Or are we a good Zen student and throw ourselves besides her yeah, and call for the bus. <laughs> Falling down. Seeing ourselves fall. Seeing others fall is a very important topic to contemplate. Because we have experienced in the history of Zen in America. Wonderful people falling down. And we were watching them at times. And we can learn a lot from that. We have to learn a lot from that. What to do, what not to do where we should not stumble ourselves if we know there is a hole, you know? Don't step into it. Don't. There's one more way that I think people do nowadays when, when they see somebody fall. You know what they do? They pull out their phone to take a video so that the rest of the world can gawk at it, you know? Post it to my story on Facebook. I saw this crazy old woman fall. I look at this. It's obscene. But take the phone away and think of your mind as such. Same thing. For some reason, the... Falling has developed into a topic. As you can see, sometimes I wear glasses, sometimes I don't. In sitting, I really like to take them off because it really makes clear that all of this is an illusion. <laughs> uh, how could any being, anything being that fuzzy be real? <laughs> but I didn't always wear glasses. Uh, when I was much, much younger and I went to school, and I also learned how to play the piano. That seemed to be just the right distance, but then very little things I, I started to miss. And I didn't necessarily do that well in school because, well, I didn't know, nobody knew, but I wasn't seeing well. So one day, 
that was discovered. Oh, you should go to the eye doctor. So I went to the eye doctor and, and I got a prescription and we got glasses for me. And getting those glasses was like an experience. I mean, from having lived a life not knowing anything else than the way it looks without corrective lenses. Suddenly you put a foreign object on and wow, you see all the details and you understand what people are talking about because, <laughs> well, yeah, it's printed on the package, <laughs> but you couldn't read it. Well, Zen practice is also a good similar to this, that suddenly seeing clearer. So I was elated. I walked home from the glasses shop and I was looking around and you know what happened? I walked into a pole. <laughs> I fell down, I lay under the pole And it probably had a sign on it said, saying something, watch for pedestrians. And <laughs> there's one lying under it. But it was a very, very important lesson for me to not take clarity as something that keeps you safe. There are still things you can't see and there will be many poles in this practice that even if we develop clarity, we might just walk into and end up with a big headache, maybe on the ground. And then after that, what really counts is how we get up. How do we get up? I got up, I pulled myself up on the pole, and I still remember that I had a terrible headache. The glasses were bent. I was back in the fuzzy realm. <laughs> this can also be likened to a session experience. <laughs> when you pull yourself up into your daily lives and things start to go fuzzy. So, the layman. His wife was also quite something. Mrs. Pang, as we already heard from her retort to the question, is Zen easy or difficult? Oh, it's so easy. Here's another story about her. Mrs. Pang one day brought a food offering to a local Buddhist temple, and she handed it to the priest. The priest thanked her and asked for the purpose of the offering so that he could post her name to transfer the merit of the offering to others. Mrs. Pang took her comb out of her pocket, stuck it in the back of her hair, and proclaimed, transference of merit has been accomplished.
But isn't that wonderfully practical? What we do here after we chant, technically, there is the belief that there is merit created from our chanting. When we do the Namu Karatano or whatever, the, 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 the Daihishu, the Daihishu just before now we did, this, this is called, uh, it, it's an ancestral service, Soshifugin. Uh, and then comes the dedication, the echo. Yeah, the Nyanki, Sampo, and so that. that is the transference of the merit that we created to, in the end, all sentient beings. But there's this really feeling in, in the Japanese belief system that it's like, like spiritual cash almost. Yeah. It's a good thing to think about it in, in a way that when we chant by, by the fact that we give ourselves fully to the activity of chanting, that we create that appearance of no self and through that alleviate suffering. First, maybe just our own, but then more and more the suffering of anyone, of any being, sentient and insentient, within all the different realms. So let's go back to Mr. Koji here. So they started to go around, we said, like itinerants, visiting various Buddhist masters while earning a living by making and selling bamboo utensils. I don't know if they had a kanshiketsu in their uh, line. So it was during this period, beginning around the year 785, so that when he was 45 years uh, old, that Pang began to study under one of the two eminent Zen masters of the time. Stonehead is the name of the person. Stonehead. Sekito. Sekito Kisen. Stonehead. And the mountain was called Nangaku, one of the sacred mountains, of the five sacred mountains in China. So upon arriving at the mountain, he went directly to Sekito and asked, what or who is the one who is not a companion to the 10,000 dharmas? At this question, Sekito put his hand on Pang's mouth. which made him realize something he had not realized before, a much deeper understanding, a deeper realization. And he decided to spend several months at Mount Nangaku. And during that time, also there's the famous verse, uh, because Seki, uh, Se Se Sekito asked him, what he's doing 
Let's see, I think I wrote it down somewhere. Where is it? Yeah. What are you doing? And the verse is very famous because the last line is still something that you also know. So uh, he was asked, what are you doing lately? And he wrote, my daily activities are not unusual. I am just naturally in harmony with them. Grasping nothing, discarding nothing. In every place there is no hindrance, no conflict. My supernatural power and marvelous activity. Drawing water and chopping wood. Wonderful. Drawing water, some say carrying water, different translations. Drawing water and chopping wood. Supernatural power and marvelous activity. Clearly already a very deep realization while at Mount Nangaku. So while the family was traveling around all of China, they also met some fellow travelers in the business of Zen. One of them was Tanka. Have you heard about Tanka? He's, he's famous for burning a Buddha statue when he was cold. <laughs> Always used as an iconoclastic thing, this story. Yeah. So together, with Tanka, he went to see Basso. And before we get to that interaction with Basso, which of course is the case, first he had to leave Mount Yaksan. And that is described in case 42 of the Hekigandroku, the Blue Cliff Record. And here is one of the translations, and you will make the connection very quickly. Ho Koji was leaving Yaksan. Yaksan let ten Zen students escort him to the temple gate to bid him farewell. Koji pointed to the falling snowflakes and said, Beautiful snowflakes, one by one none falling in an inappropriate place. Remember that was the quote that Roshi pulled out yesterday. This translation here said, beautiful snowflakes one by one, but they fall nowhere else. Different translation. I like the inappropriate place much better. Then one of the Zen students said, then where do they fall? Koji slapped him. The Zen student said, Layman, you shouldn't be so abrupt. Koji said, If you are like that and call yourself a Zen student, Emma, Yama, the Lord of Hell, 
will never let you go. The student said, what about yourself? Pow! He gave him another one and said, you look, but you are like a blind man. You speak, but, uh, but you are like a deaf mute. Clearly unafraid to express his understanding, not only in a wonderful poetic way, but also to pass it on and to act decisively. That is the case 42. There is also a part in the case 42 in the, in the commentary that quotes a part of, of that um, poem that you find in case 23 of the Shumon Katoshu, which we are talking about today. So there's one more story about the daughter that I wanted to share with you. At one point, she seemed to be more advanced in her understanding and wiser than her father. And this story illustrates this. The layman was sitting in his thatched cottage one day, studying the sutras. Ah, difficult, difficult, he said. This is like trying to scatter 10 measures of sesame seeds all over a tree. Easy, easy, Mrs. Pang said. <laughs> this is like touching your feet to the ground when you get out of bed. Easy, easy. Neither difficult nor easy, said the daughter. On the hundred grass tips, the great master's meaning. In other words, every blade of grass bears the great master's meanings. I would have liked to meet that woman. Both of them. I couldn't have done much with the comb, but she seemed like a really interesting person, Mrs. Pang. So now he appears, Layman Pang, in front of Baso Doitsu. And what does he do? He repeats basically the same question that he had asked his previous teacher. Who is it that does not keep company with the 10,000 things? Translated in various ways. This is the translation that Domai Jimio uh, had. Who is it not bound to the 10,000 things? Who is that person that is not bound to doing something? Like plowing a field. 
with a plow without depending on anything. Who is that? Who is it who is hearing? Basui writes exactly about this koan of the West River in some of his writings. And that's what he says there. Continue to ask. Who is that person? Who is hearing? Who? A wonderful inquiry. Basso answered, I will tell you when you swallow the water of the West River in a single gulp. We have looked at the West River. How can you swallow life and death in a single gulp with all the fish in it, with all the debris in it? the sewage from upstream, all of it. Once you do that, I will tell you. And there's another version that where Pang supposedly says, well, I have already swallowed the water of the river. And what was the answer? then I don't have to tell you. <laughs> Isn't that wonderfully unsatisfying? <laughs> wonderfully unsatisfying. At that moment, though, Pang was deeply awakened a deeper realization than he had when he had uh, been at Mount Nangaku. And he composed a verse. His poetry is regarded as being very high-class Zen poetry. All in the Ten Directions are of the same assembly. In other words, Shujo Honrai Hotoke Nari, all sentient beings are fundamentally Buddha. Even in sentient things, everything, nothing is left out. All in the ten directions are of the same assembly. Each and every one learning non-doing, mu'i, mu'i, different mu'i than no rank. Mu'i, well, maybe you connect to it better by the Chinese pronunciation of wu-wei. Quite an interesting concept that came from Buddhism into Taoism, wu-wei the non-doing with many, many, it's like the unconditioned, the unconditioned. But that is getting a little bit too 
academic if we start thinking that way. Each and every one learning non-doing. This is the place where Buddha is chosen. And those characters sometimes also point to the Zen hall, the Sodo, the Zendo is the place where Buddhas are chosen. Senbutsu-jo. Senbutsu-jo. And we all have the privilege of having a seat in that extraordinary place. Mind empty, exam passed, I have returned home. So let us use our remaining hours of this Rohatsu day to continue in the Senbutsujo, in the place where Buddhas are chosen, to make our judicious choices. To become like the family Pang, who were able to realize all of this in what we could call a truly ordinary life. Let's aspire to that. Let's continue to empty our minds. Don't think about any exams, but returning home, home, home. And that's where we all have been, all together, as Kalyana Mitra, as good, old, deep spiritual friends. Welcome home. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.